Welcome to number 54, the March 2022 episode of Bad News, Angry Voices from Around the World. This is the monthly English-language podcast from the A-Radio Network of anarchist and anti-authoritarian radios, podcasts, and stations. This month, A-Radio Berlin shares part of an interview with members of the Gorillas Workers Collective, which is organizing at the app-driven food delivery system around Berlin, Germany, about employment, data collection, precarity, and labor organizing. Then you'll hear updates about anarchist prisoners, hunger strikes, and releases in Greece from Free Social Radio 1431 out of Thessaloniki. Following this, you'll hear perspectives from a queer anarchist in Kiev from about four days after the Russian invasion, conducted by A Radio Vienna. Finally, you'll hear comrades at Chernoluknia in Ljubljana, Slovenia, with an anarcho-syndicalist in Belgrade, Serbia, about the role of NATO in the war in Ukraine, the need for revolution against all governments involved, and other topics. You can learn more about the network, the participants, past episodes of Bad News can be heard, and also you can find out how to get involved with your project in the A-Radio Network at a-radio-network.org. A transcript of the A-Radio segment will be available in the notes for this podcast. Enjoy. A-Radio Berlin shares parts of a recording of an info event of the Gorillas Workers Collective, the GWC, in Berlin. Gorillas is a startup company that started in 2020 making money by delivering groceries to people using bicycle riders who are employed in very exploitative ways in terms of the contracts, payment, lack of equipment and constant digital performance tracking. Resistance among the workers quickly emerged. One radical part of it is in form of the Gorillas Workers Collective, which besides initiating a workers' council was also involved in setting up wildcat strikes and organizing people in general. It can kind of be seen as a sort of case study of how workers can organize collectively in today's precarious gig economies and how shady venture capital-driven companies like Gorillas try to quench and stomp out this type of resistance within and beyond the limits of labor law. So, let's listen in. And obviously, because you're cycling in very heavy traffic and you're trying, you're, you're trying to be quick, because at the back of your mind, you know that you have to be quick because they're monitoring you. And if you're not quick, because you have also six months of probation, they can just fire you for whatever reason. So basically how it works is that we have these different warehouses around the city um, and they're kind of like a mini supermarket um, with like shelves and you have people that work inside the warehouse and then you have riders who are basically um, delivering those goods to like a certain uh, periphery around the warehouse. And at the moment I think we've got 20-ish warehouses, but it's like expanding all the time, so... Every couple of months, there's a new warehouse that's like popping up. And then there's, yeah, lots of different jobs, like inside and then outside, just to give a bit of an idea of kind of what it looks like. And kind of the concept, as I'm sure you're aware, is to deliver your groceries in under 10 minutes. So the customer orders it on their phone, and then 10 minutes later, it arrives at your door. So it's kind of like a quick scramble to pick the items, to put them in a bag, and then it's a quick scramble on the bike to then deliver it to that address with under 10 minutes and kind of each part of the process it's kind of like monitored and timed in some ways so they get a lot of data um, and like feedback about your performance based on how quick you're doing either filling up the bag with items or how quick you are delivering it basically on the bike point out i think the whole uh, supermarket thing is a front um that, that's what they presented a lot in the media and everywhere 
I think the main product is data. Nowadays, they're collecting everything by GPS. We're going everywhere by bike, by GPS, and they can see how many orders a rider can do until they get a sick note or something like that. Uh, in the future, uh, most of the jobs will be, the, the direction is that every job, a doctor, a uh, um, teacher, everyone that now works on a full contract with benefits, with everybody should be working on an app. And this kind of data that is collected at this point on the backs of migrants can be then processed and sold to, to these companies that will then uh, be in charge of, of uh, precarization of these other jobs. Because when you're in a precarious situation, you are more uh, servile, you don't stand up for your rights, you don't have many rights to begin with. And I think this is a big thing that is not being mentioned nowadays, that these companies are a big threat to, to not just us migrants, <laughs> but to the, to the people here that have good working conditions, that have unions, but unions that are kind of slow in reacting and with an outdated sort of reaction time. I was talking openly on WhatsApp groups about the problems that existed, falling for them for the shit uh, pro uh, promises that uh, the bosses were throwing around were family. If you have any complaints, just bring them over. But we were gonna deal with them, blah 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 blah. But those are all just tactics to get people to, to get people to show to, to to get the people who would be what they call troublemakers. They were starting lists and just to, sh to have people to fire at some point. So I made the mistake to, to, to comment on this WhatsApp group started by the company with my own name. So obviously I went on the list. We are not meeting at this point. Uh, we're just all writing on WhatsApp groups. So I guess the more the least uh, experience of us were writing with our own names while the other people who knew about organizing were trying to reach people quietly in the background and telling them, hey, you want to come to a meeting? Hey, let's meet, let's meet. And we're all the people who are not <clears throat> used to meetings and organizing. We're kind of like, ah, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't really fit in my free time. I just want to do fun things. I don't want to meet. So we're kind of resistant to, to the idea. Eventually we did start the meetings and people started sharing their knowledge with us. So that was very nice. And, but eventually the company uh, caught up. There were issues in last February where there were strikes because there were uh, there was some storms in which riders were refusing to, refusing to work. So they had to close it. So it made, they made it seem as if it was their choice. It was the company's choice to close it for the well-being of the workers. Uh, those were the first strikes. And as it happens, I was, I was, I just took sick leave immediately as the storm started. I was not even part of those, but still they went for the people who were already vocal on these groups, on the WhatsApp groups, trying to get them into meetings. And I said, I'm not coming. I'm, I'm sick. <laughs> I have my sick leave. So eventually, eventually there was something else I posted online and then the next day I was fired. And because uh, the termination letter was not legally made, was not legally... Uh, there was So every time you're fired in Germany, you're only fired when you have a paper. Everything else is not legal. So if someone calls you and tells you you're fired, you're not fired. If someone t comes to you and tells you you're fired, you're not fired. I didn't know that at that point, but anyway, I asked uh, support. There were people from FAO, this um, anarcho-syndicalist union that probably you know about. I didn't know that much about. <clears throat> they were very supportive, and they got me in touch with a lawyer. But two late days later, told me that the, um, the termination was not valid because the signature was done by the CEO and he didn't give another paper that gives power of signature to the um, to the person who actually handed me the, 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 the termination letter. So because we were already talking in meetings by that point about starting a workers' council, we thought of 
initiating the process then, like this lawyer gave me a letter that would then cancel the termination and the termination would be done again legally two days later. So a way to avoid that is to work to start a workers' council process, which along with having the process and starting it as we were intending, would also offer immunity from termination to the people who started. So once I started giving this paper that, term, that canceled the termination, we also put up the papers for the um, initiation of the workers' council. Nowadays, because of a change in the law, you can do it better by um, going to a notary and getting a paper in which you show your intent of starting a workers' council. And that also gives you immunity from termination, gives you protection. We were able to organize the, the elections at the, the last week of November, so it took us quite some time. That, 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 that basically concluded the existence <laughs> of, the, of the Electoral Council. On the other side, one week after we had the General Assembly, uh, there was a... A spontaneous uh, work stoppage, a spontaneous strike that took place in the Checkpoint Charlie warehouse uh, on June 9th. You've probably heard of it, the one that happened because of the unlawful firing of a colleague, co-worker called Santiago. And that was basically the moment, I believe, in which the, the GWC basically like <laughs> got to be known by a lot of people thanks to social media. Before, the, the Twitter profile had like... 400 followers, 300, most of whom were like somewhat involved in the like the the writer struggle. Uh, I don't know, know how to call it. And afterwards, yeah, like just a lot of, a lot of people found found out about it, and it it attracted a lot of a lot of attention. We all I think had like different opinions uh, regarding what to do or how to address that attention. It also generated a lot of internal tension. <laughs> Anyways, that happened on a Thursday, no, on a Wednesday, and in the on the subsequent days, on Thursday and Friday, there were there were other uh, blockades and and work stoppages. That that very same Wednesday, after it happened at Checkpoint Charlie, it also happened at uh, another warehouse in Dorstrasse in Mitte. There we were this close from <laughs> from either getting beaten or or like mass arrested by by the by the riot squad, which was called by or summoned by the city manager who was there happily um, staring at us. The following day it happened in Prenzlauerberg and one of the warehouses there, and the following day in Kreuzberg. So that was, that was quite an intense uh, week in June. So yeah, that was the, the second wave of strikes and the third one. So the, the first one was in February of 2021 because of snow and yeah. Not so, it was, it was stopped immediately because they were looking for more funding, so they immediately said, oh, we're a good company, we're going to give you time off. Then they got their funding, and when this strike started, yeah, they fired a lot of people. No, the, no this time they didn't, no. That time it was, it was only Santiago. Yeah, uh, they didn't and, hire him back. Yeah. And they didn't hire him back. I mean, I don't mean to speak for Santiago, but the, the first day he was like quite, the first, the first two days he was like quite like, yeah, let's, let's fucking do this. And then towards the third day he was more like, yeah, maybe, maybe let's chill. <laughs> maybe let's take it easy. So yeah, like of course we weren't going to to like force the point if the person in question didn't 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 want us to force the point. <laughs> so it 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 kind of withered away, but there were also still like like energy and motivation to do something. I think the next thing was we we like organized a a bike tour basically like three weeks after I think, and it was mildly successful. There were also some like work stoppages in 
four warehouses the same day. And then I would say there were some like sporadic, also like mini strikes or like mini work stoppages during August and September up until October, which was another really intense moment. The first week of October, the Bermankeets warehouse, then followed by the Schöneberg warehouse, and then followed by the Gesundbrunnen warehouse, they all stopped work. I think Bermankeets was the one that, that uh, had like work stoppage for the, that stopped work for the longest, for like four days. Basically the same, same, same stuff, like equipment, payment, disrespectful treatment in the warehouse. And following that, a lot of people were fired. Uh, my estimate is that around 70 60 to 70 people were fired. The the media's estimate was it was uh, somewhere close 350. I think that's it. Like I mean, yeah. strike-related people were fired, but they were mm -hmm. fired in a very strange. Like lots of them were fired by phone or uh, in a illegal way, and mm -hmm. some of them were rehired. Some of them were <laughs> properly fired with a letter some days later. Later, so it just created a lot of confusion, a mm -hmm. lot of uh, division because some people got their jobs back, some people didn't. Some people weren't sure if they got it back, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of lack of knowledge about rights mm -hmm. within uh, within this group of workers, uh, the gorillas, and in general the, the delivery se sector. It worked. It worked to just mess with people by by doing illegal things around the, the time. For more infos from and to get in contact with the GWC, you can find them on Twitter at Gorillas Workers. Greetings from Free Social Radio, 1431 AM in Thessaloniki. Anarchist comrade Polycarpus Georgiadis is free again. On the 2nd of March, court of appeal pledged him guilty for possession of weapons with a sentence of five years in prison with suspension. Polycarpus was already 17 months in prison with a temporary detention the judge pledged at his arrest. He now have restrictive terms with a ban to leave Greece and the compulsory visit to the police department twice a month. Polycarpus was arrested on 23rd of September 2020 after an investigation of anti-terror police department in a warehouse that he rents. Cops found the bag with explosive material, detonators and cartridges. Investigation started after an anonymous call to cops that supposedly targeted him. He got into custody because the misdemeanor of the explosive possession upgraded to felony of explosive and war material possession with purpose of disposal to others in order to commit terrorist felonies. At his apology, stated that another person had taken the responsibility for those explosives and he takes the responsibility for occupation and the safekeeping. They were buried for eight years and recovered because at that spot there were construction works. Due to his military knowledge, he knew that those explosives were dangerous and kept them safe at the warehouse. He also stated that the case is set up because of the misdemeanor upgrade to felony. This happened due to his political position as an anarchist and communist. This is not the first time anti-terror cops base case at anonymous calls. Tassos Theophilou, co-worker of Polycarpos, was sentenced to 25 years in prison based on anonymous call and later at the court of appeal got innocent, staying in prison for four years. Vasilis Dimakis, prisoner at Korydalos, started for the 14th of March 
hunger and thirst strike for the third time in his sentence. The reason is his educational rights that are being violated again. The Marcus during his sentence started studying at University of Athens. On the 28th of February 2022, university started its courses and Vasilis wants to be able to attend his two last in order to get his degree. Prison disciplinary board that decides for its educational leave denies to consider his demand. They also deny to consider another inmates and fellow students Vasilis Anagnopoulos application who also started hunger and third strike. Prosecutor that denies the application was also decided before one month not to allow Demakis to be in his exams the previous semester despite the calls and letters from his professors. He then submitted an application for attending spring semester's courses, but again it has not yet been examined due to the prosecutor's full program. On the 14th of March, anarchist prisoner Thanos Hadziagelu and prisoner Panos Kalaitzis both started hunger strike for 24 hours in solidarity with Dimakis. On 16th of March, the demands of Dimakis after political pressure were met. This is the letter of Panos Kalaitzis, prisoner of Ridalos prison. It has been more than four weeks since the day that my pre-trial detention was decided. Now, life in Corridalos prison has become my new daily routine. In the following letter, I would like to share the facts that took place before and after my arrest, as well as some things about my position and where I stand in all this. A few words about the facts. 15 days prior to my arrest, my colleague and now co-accused Thanos Hadziagelu, after informing me that he has symptoms of the COVID-19 virus, asked me to fill in his rift, which I actually did. After discussing with him, I decided to give him the apartment I was renting on Alkino Street in Thessaloniki for quarantine isolation, as I could stay for a while to my partner's apartment. This happened for three reasons. First of all, so that Thanos could protect his own partner and flatmate. Secondly, to ensure the smooth operation of the cooperative business that we run, as his affirmation partner is also a registered member of it. Thirdly, for my personal safety, as I am fully vaccinated, I am also in contact with people I need and want to protect from COVID-19. After Thanos Hadziagelu has been officially tested positive to COVID-19, I had no contact with him at all for the next 15 days. I did not enter or went near my apartment, which I had given to him not even once. This can be verified by the anti-terrorist unit's testimonies, which do not include any mention of my name to the, at any point during their surveillance of uh, Thanos and the apartment. It was only one day before my arrest and after Thanos was tested negative to COVID-19 that he came to our business shop where I saw him for the first time after 15 days. He then asked me if he could prolong his staying at my apartment for another two or three days, which I accepted since, I, as I said before, I had the alternative option to stay at my partner's apartment. And this is how we reached the day of my arrest. On Tuesday 8th of February at 7 p.m., I was taken into custody by special anti-terrorist unit officials as I was leaving my partner's residence where I was staying. 
They took me to Thessaloniki's police headquarters and a few hours later I was made aware that I am under arrest. After I spent a whole night in the offices of the anti-terrorist unit with a hood over my head and my hands tied, I was taken to the court where I met for the first time while in the detention cell my other co-accused Georgia Vulgar. In fact, I asked her through the bars to remove her protective mask for a second in case I could recognize her face since I have never seen her before in my life. The rest is history, as I am currently held in pre-trial detention in the Corridalos prison for a case in which I had absolutely no involvement. A few words about me. I have never used the political labor on myself and I do not intend to do now so as to gain a political surplus value or sympathy. I have never declared myself as an anarchist, I have never declared myself a revolutionary and I would never declare myself an armed guerrilla. Nevertheless, I am a politically minded person and I have never been afraid to speak my mind. I have never stopped fighting for justice. From 2008 to 2010, when I went abroad to work, I participated in open meetings in my neighborhood, trying to improve the common standard of living along with fellow neighbors. Since the end of 2015, when I returned to Greece, I have satisfied my need for sports through a self-organized team which opposes to modern championships, mainly revolving around playing business, money and the doping mentality. I have also intentionally chosen to participate in a cooperative business offering an alternative way of working, which does not only focus to financial gain. When the government decided to shut down everything due to the COVID-19 pandemic, ignoring the fate of the homeless and impoverished people, the drug addicts and the low or zero income families, I participated into cooking and catering facilities in order to help those in need. It would seem that all the above were enough to render me the much convenient third person that could activate the Greek criminal code and more specifically the article 187A regarding the consistency of a terrorist organization and help build this ridiculous case without even a single mention of my name anywhere in the anti-terrorist unit's testimonies. I was never afraid to speak my mind and shout for justice, nor do I intend to start now. A justice which, as the facts show, does not lay in the hands of those who hold me in prison without any evidence, merely fulfilling their own political expediencies. Power to those who fight for justice, power to my co-accused who, from their own point of view, fight their own separate battle. Panos Kalaitis, Corridalos Prisons, Wing D.
The next segment is a short interview with a queer anarchist in Kiev, what we made on the 28th of February. So only four days after the invasion of the Green by Russian troops started. We know that it's not completely up to date anymore, but I still think it's interesting and we want to share it. We have not heard from the comrades since then, but we hope for the best. Because of the situation, it was not possible to do a live interview, so we sent back and forth questions and audio files. Here is the interview. Hello, can you introduce yourself shortly, whatever you want to say about yourself? Hey, my name is Bree. I am a queer anarchist from Kyiv, Ukraine. Can you tell us where you are at the moment? So I'm currently in Kyiv. Uh, my family is in an apartment uh, and uh, sometimes we have to go to shelter. But uh, we plan to be here until the end of war. Okay, can you describe the last days from your perspective and how is the situation now? Uh, I can explain the situation uh, here now. Uh, so main Ukrainian cities, Kyiv and Kharkiv, are under constant attacks by the Russian forces, artillery and missiles. Uh, the number of civilian uh, casualties of Putin's aggression is constantly rising. Many people are hiding in shelters, metro or in their homes. Many have moved uh, to safer places in Ukraine or, or abroad. Many volunteered to territorial self-defense or civic uh, initiatives. Uh, they are donating blood, collecting humanitarian aid. Uh, the resistance to the aggressor is enormous. Uh, it seems that uh, Putin's initial blitzkrieg uh, plans have failed uh, at almost all directions. Uh, Russian soldiers have low morals and lack of motivation uh, for waging this war. Okay, thank you for your perspective. Uh, how is the situation for anarchists at the moment? Um, our comrades, uh, anarchists, uh, are now working in two directions. Uh, they are volunteering, uh, collecting resources, communication, media, and uh, they participate in a territorial self-defense group. Um, we have uh, a lack of equipment and medicines. That's... Um, That's a problem. Okay, thank you for this answer. Um, your last answer was already a transition for my last question. How can we help you? How can we support you? The best way is to support people here. Uh, like we have uh, um, like four directions. The first one is financial and material support. Uh, for instance, uh, our comrades need bulletproof vests, helmets, uh, other stuff for armed uh, resistance. Uh, we can receive help uh, in money or in items. Uh, the second one is uh, media solidarity. We need all the progressive people to uncover the truth about this aggression and uh, intervention. Moreover, for us is important uh, representation or presentation of socially progressive resistance to Putin's uh, totalitarianism. Uh, remember that we are not defenders of the nation state, we are defenders of the society and its chance to develop its grassroots projects of cooperation and self-government. Uh, the third thing is um, <coughs> we need um, help with relocation and accommodation for people who decided to leave. And the last one, uh, we can also use support here on the ground. We need help with infrastructure and everything else. 
if you can mention to travel to Ukraine, please contact us. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer my questions. This war is a fight for hope. We believe that society will become more socially oriented and self-organized despite Putin's attempts to stop this. We need the support of the international community more than ever. Thank you, comrades. Poklicali ste črno luknjo in njeno kontrainformativno mrežo. Popisku odajte svoj glas. So, hello, comrade. Do we hear each other? Hello, comrade. Yes, if you can speak a little bit louder, please, because it's uh, it's not a very good connection, but I can hear you still. Okay, we hear you very good. So, how is Beograd today? Well, uh, it's uh, uh, less cold than yesterday, and hopefully it will stay like that, uh, especially taking into account uh, the whole situation with, uh, with the war and uh, the gas uh, shortages and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay, to present you shortly, you are Rata, you are involved in anarchist movement for a long time. Uh, you are very familiar also with anarcho-syndicalist uh, movement in Belgrade. So, and we want to talk in this interview, maybe, what is the positions regarding the war in Ukraine. Is this okay? This is perfect. Uh, I, I was a member of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Initiative for many years, and uh, I am now a friend of this organization. I'm not uh, officially a member, but uh, I agree with their uh, politics and the statements, and I'm sure I can comment on some of those things uh, with you. Yeah, also we believe that from perspective of Balkan, it, it might be interesting to try to understand uh, this war happening at the moment. So for the beginning, maybe you can uh, tell as far as we see some currents uh, in anarchism in uh, your region are blaming NATO a lot for the war in Ukraine. Can you explain this a little bit more? I mean, um, it, it's not a question of blaming. I think it's very important that we do not uh, fall into uh, what the capitalists are doing in their analysis. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, I, I saw that, for example, uh, ASI statement is uh, uh, showing that the uh, uh, ASI statement, which is available on the IWA, IWA website uh, about the, uh, about the world, it is saying that the motive for the Russian attack on Ukraine was the NATO expansion. But I also saw that the comrades from Italy, from Five, uh, in their newspaper Umanita Nova, gave the very very good analysis in which they also showed that the expansion of NATO is the initial element for the uh, beginning of the war. I mean, uh, of course, I feel it's very important that we approach to things by understanding that everything is a process, that we cannot just take one snapshot uh, in time and try to analyze this and say this is happening because of this or because of that moment in history. We have to analyze the whole process that is going on and then try to understand what is going on. If, for example, we were to take the 1944 
in the Second World War, we could say that the uh, anti-fascists are uh, killing and destroying the uh, Nazis and fascists uh, without any reason. But if we take out the larger picture and we understand how the war started in the 30s and then the 40s, then we can understand the, what is really happening because the truth is the whole, not only one segment. So I see that uh, some of the comrades, uh, especially coming from the lifestyle background, are uh, focusing on the element of a Russian uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine or the beginning of the, and they are seeing this as the beginning of the war. And this is this kind of a positivist approach in which we do not understand what is really going on. What is really going on is a war which is happening between Ukraine on one side and on the other side, EU and NATO. It's Russia on one side and on the other side, it's EU and NATO. It is not a war between Russia and Ukraine because Ukraine doesn't have any kind of subjectivity of its own. It is just an exponent of NATO and EU. And NATO and EU is also sending guns to these people. Uh, NATO and EU is involving sanctions, which is a war against the population of Russia. So we have two warring sides. One side is NATO and EU, and the other side is Russia. And we think that this is the perspective from which, this is the real internationalist perspective from which the situation should be analyzed. And we, if we analyze it like that, and not like some meta position, which is also quite common among some of the comrades, to say that this is a war happening between Russia and Ukraine, and we are now solidarizing with people in Russia and Ukraine. This is totally uh, leaving behind the fact that we, especially as anarchists in the Balkans, Balkans is totally part of NATO in everywhere, including Serbia, which is also a biggest, uh, NATO is the biggest uh, military uh, workout partner for Serbia also. So the whole Balkans is in the NATO. We have to understand we are in war. Our, not us, of course, but our states are in war. And the duty of our movement is to fight against our states in the war. It's not to fight, we cannot fight other states in the war from the Balkans or anywhere in the Europe. We cannot fight in Russia against militarism and Russian imperialism because we do not have military bases of Russia here. We do not have our own people there. Only the people in Russia and Ukraine can fight against Russian imperialism. And here in the Balkans and in Europe, we have to fight EU and NATO, which are part of this war. But still, the Russian Federation cross uh, the borders uh, of Ukraine. So what is, do you have any comment on what is the responsibility of Russian state or, and what does the people in Ukraine have with this? Uh, people in Ukraine are the victims, as are people in Russia, as are people everywhere. It is always when there are capitalist and imperialist wars, the people are uh, uh, victims. But there is no, the people of Ukraine are not organized in any kind of a political force. We are now talking about the Ukrainian state. Of course, the Russian state crossed the borders, but this is important only in the level of the international legal relations between the states. And we are, if we are analyzing the states, we know that the states are in fact hooligans. And when the hooligans are fighting among themselves, there is no logic in supporting one of the hooligans against the others. It is the Russians who crossed the borders first, but it was first the NATO of whose Nazified uh, exponent is Ukraine. It is the NATO that surrounded Ukraine. So the problem here is that many countries are thinking about the relation of uh, behavior of the states as if these were people. These are not the people. These are the states. If you have uh, one person who is having a fight with somebody else and if this other is trying to circle you it is the most normal thing that you are going to fight first you are going to kick him first so that you are not circled 
Russia has been been circle, circled by the Ukraine uh, by the NATO for years now. They're trying to circle it totally. So the idea that they're not going to attack first only means that they are either stupid or the analysis is racist, which is saying it is okay for one hooligan to surround the other hooligan, but it is not okay for the other hooligan to defend himself by attacking first. And this is, I think, what is uh, a very big confusion which is going on among the people. Russian state is not person. It is a state. State is a hooligan. And the NATO is also a hooligan whose exponent is Ukraine, Ukrainian state, not the people in Ukraine. So Ukrainian state is a hooligan which was participating in circling of another hooligan, which is a Russian state. So the Russian state, as every hooligan in every fight knows, they have to hit first if they are not going to lose by being surrounded by the other hooligans. It is not the, the role of the anarchists and the revolutionaries to pick side of the state hooligans. It is to pick side of our class. And this is something completely different from saying poor Ukrainian state. Ukrainian state, it's a Nazified thing. It is not a Nazi state, but it is the only state in the world which has military and police forces which are openly Nazi, Nazi units. So they're not part of the military, they're part of the military with the ideological autonomy to be Nazis. So there is nothing cool about the Ukrainian state, especially if we are anarchists, that we should be worrying because the other state has attacked it. It is how the states are functioning. They're attacking each other. And it is always important for anarchists to say we are not on any side of any state. We are against all of the states. And this is uh, Russian Federation on one side. On the other side, it is NATO and EU and Ukrainian state. So let's place Serbia into that. Who today is the ruling class in Serbia? And if you look at it at in a way that the country, the state, Serbia itself, is a product from transition of the socialist regime in Yugoslavia to brutal capitalism, in which war has an important place. What can you say about the perspective, looking also at the history of those territories? Who profits from the war in Ukraine and why right now? And what will probably be the consequences of it? And how will we feel the consequences? I totally agree with you. Uh, Serbia is a product of this, and uh, whole ex-Yugoslavian region is a product of this uh, war transition, because that was the way how the uh, property could be given to the new owners, new ruling class by the bureaucracy which was in power in Yugoslavia before that. But now, in this situation, Serbia is a colony of Germany. A majority of the investments in Serbia are coming from EU, concretely from Germany and France. The whole politics here is being controlled by the EU. This is on the economic level and this is the level which is controlling everything else. On a military level, every year Serbia has five times more military exercises with NATO than with uh, Russia. So they have like three exercises with uh, Russia and they have uh, 15 exercises with NATO every year. So it is totally clear that Serbia and uh, it, uh, Serbia is a state which is surrounded with NATO membering state. So it is a clear thing that Serbia is a NATO uh, country also. It is part of this EU-NATO bloc, but because of the historical uh, circumstances like bombing of Serbia, it is not official. 
part of NATO, and for the time being, it is holding the position of the bourgeois neutrality. We, of course, know that there is no bourgeois neutrality. It is, uh, as Churchill said, it is not important who is neutral, but on which side you are neutral on. I think Serbia is clearly neutral on the European side, and right now we are living in the state where NATO countries and everybody else is trying to push Serbia to go into the war by introducing sanctions to Russia. So right now you have all levels of state, from the state level to the level which is totally irrelevant. Like, for example, there is a European Conference of Universities which is trying to push Belgrade University to come out and ask for the sanctions. So you have European universities pushing Belgrade University to come out in support of the war, in participating in the war. What is also very important for me, because I'm coming from Serbia, is that we were living under the sanctions during the 90s. I was living also then. And we know that this is a war against the people. The rich always find a way to meet their needs. But the sanctions, even when they're presented as targeted sanctions or something like that, this is directly the war against the people. And in this context, for us in Serbia, now we feel that the main fight is to prevent NATO to push us into another war to prevent them to push the Serbian government to introduce sanctions and participate in the war. But the, for, for the comrades in the Balkans, we feel because the NATO countries are there, we don't have any Russian military bases in the Balkans, we don't have a Russian military in the Balkans, but we have NATO military in the Balkans, we have NATO and EU states which are sending guns, all types of guns, the bombs which are now falling in Ukraine. They are not only Russian bombs, they are EU bombs, they are NATO bombs. They are talking about getting the planes there. Uh, for the first time after the Second World War, EU countries were, are getting huge amounts of money for their militarization and sending the guns to Ukraine. This is why I feel that in Balkans we have to fight EU and NATO war effort. We have to be making protests against the war. We have to not, uh, not to deal with what the Russians are doing. This is what the uh, Russian people should be fighting against. We shouldn't be supporting our ruling class by fighting another ruling class that they are fighting against. We have to fight against our own ruling class. And this means that we have to fight against uh, sending of the guns from the Balkans and from EU to Ukraine. We have to fight against organizing of the military convoys or anything else of that sort, which is being organized by our own states and under the quotation marks, our side. Okay. Maybe we can continue with next question. In 90s in Serbia, a lot of people didn't want to have war, especially in the sense of this obligatory mobilization or forceful mobilization. So a lot of people were de de deserting or just run away from the country or didn't want to participate in some other kind of forums, try to resist in participation of war. <clears throat> so the question is... Um, Was something changed then, at that time, uh, by activities like this? And do you think that serious anti-war movements in Russia or in Ukraine can shift seriously the course of war? Of course, there was there, there were people. I, I mean, people are always against the war. It is only only the ruling class that is for the war. So I guess majority of the people are always against the war. And uh, there were deserters in uh, Yugoslav wars uh, that we supported, and there are deserters all around the world that uh, uh, and 
in Russia also and in Ukraine and everywhere else which are fighting against the war in this uh, very concrete method by uh, running away from the military and so on. And uh, this is something that we support. I mean, uh, for revolutionaries, anti-militarism would go even step further than the desertation. The uh, step further would be to take over your military units and stop the war. This is how, uh, how the Russian revolution started in the First World War. This is what we need to do. It's not only that we need somebody to run away, because, because that is not going to be changed. What is the only thing that can stop the war is revolution. And this is something that has to be clear. There is no other way that we can stop the war. And this means in Russia, but it means also in Europe. And for the European comrades who are, uh, I, I don't know, somehow very often not aware that we are in the war. I'm just hoping that uh, the, the Russians are not going to cut off the gas and then the people are going to understand that they are in the war. It is better that the comrades and everybody else understands now that we are in the war and that we can help the stoppage of the war by pressuring our ruling classes to stop the war. And this is the thing that I, I, I think is only needed. I cannot say who, how, what is perspective. Is, it, is this viable? Is this going to be happening for sure or not? But I think that we should do the things which are right and not that the, the things that we know are going to be definitely working. We have to do the things because they are right. And I would just uh, come back to the previous question in one little moment, and this is the question, who is profiting from the war? It is always the ruling classes who are profiting in the war, but I would notice that this war was initially pushed by the NATO and the USA uh, against direct interest of the EU, because the EU, because of its ge geographical position and everything else, has with Russia in the capitalist context. It cannot be functioning without cooperation with Russia. So initially it was war against the Russian, Ukrainian people and the EU. But when the war started, EU totally lined up and joined uh, USA and now it is a NATO-EU war against the Russian and it is in the interest, I guess, uh, you know, if you are uh, making the differences between the different capitalist powers, I think the biggest profiteer will be United States. Okay, I think uh, we managed to discuss quite a lot, so uh, maybe we can slowly finish with interview for sure. We will be in contact and also maybe do some solidarity actions together in near yes, future. Please. Yes, yes. And try to spread the resistance against militarization, war, nationalism and imperialism. Yes. Great. Uh, okay, thank you for the interview. Thank you, comrades. Best regards and salute the anarchia. <laughs> Ciao. Ciao. Madonna, se tu ikuš kako da blahajka. Barbada, se moraš poje. Ampak se tu le ni nobenega reda, nobene discipline. Se sploh ne veš, kdo komandira. Vsak ima besedo. Na svobodo se pripravljajo, to je tist. Na svobodo vas pripravlja Črna Luknja. Anarhistični glas na Radiu Študent. Na svobodo vas pripravlja Črna Luknja.